Hello, and welcome to the EPC podcast, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I'm the head of communications at the European Policy Center. A few months ago, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover triggered fears of another refugee crisis in Europe. Pictures of Afghans fleeing from Kabul and overcrowded planes prompted new warnings about a so-called repeat of 2015. The EU's response focused primarily on evacuating EU citizens and promising support to neighboring countries hosting Afghan refugees in a not-so-veiled attempt to keep as many refugees as possible away from European soil. Since then, the spotlights have dimmed. But as winter looms and the new regime tightens its grip, what has happened to those Afghans that stayed behind? What has happened to those that have left? Are the EU and international community doing enough to address the growing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and the plight of Afghan refugees? And what does the EU's tense, knee-jerk response and approach to Afghan refugees and asylum seekers say about the state of its migration policy? Could there be a more humane, hopeful way forward? This episode is part of the Mercator Dialogue on Migration and Asylum, or MEDAM, a research project that develops evidence-based solutions for asylum and immigration policies. The Kiel Institute for the World Economy and the Migration Policy Center at the European University Institute in Florence have been involved in MEDAM since its founding. The EPC joined MEDAM at the beginning of 2020 and leads the monitoring and analysis of developments in EU migration policies. In the first of a two-part episode, we'll look closer at the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, what the EU is doing to address it, and how Afghan refugees are faring in neighboring and other transit countries. To get a better picture of what was and is happening on the ground in Afghanistan, I first spoke to Abdul Ghaffour, founder and director of the Afghanistan Migrants Advice and Support Organization. He himself was evacuated from Taliban-controlled Kabul to Germany last August. Unfortunately, there is a humanitarian uh, disaster going on in Afghanistan. Millions of people, according to UNDP, 23 million people are facing hunger. So the situation is very bad. I'm in contact with several Afghan families who do not have one-time meal these days. They cannot afford to buy food for their children. Afghans are forced to sell their children. There have been several examples of people who have been forced to sell their young child. And there was a case of uh, this family who was selling their child for $500, for example. Uh, There are several uh, families in the capital, Kabul, who have been contacting me uh, there hasn't been uh, sufficient enough support for them. So this, the Afghans are going through a very bad uh, time these days. And if if uh, the humanitarian 
AIDS do not reach the African people, there will be a human catastrophe and thousands of people will unfortunately lose their lives if they do not uh, get enough food, they do not get enough uh, sufficient water and support. And so what you're what you're telling here is that the situation is, is absolutely dire. So are Afghans still fleeing the country or has that become harder in the past few weeks? I mean, due to the Taliban, but also due to the very harsh situation and if they do manage to flee, where are they ending up? Yes, Afghans are still fleeing the country. Uh, the number may have decreased or increased, uh, but there are thousands of Afghans who are still fleeing. So most of the Afghans are uh, fleeing to the neighboring countries because that's where they start their journey. According to Norwegian Refugee Council, between 4,000 to 5,000 Afghans enter Iran on a daily basis. And then you, you have a lower number of Afghans who are trying to enter Pakistan because it's much harder to enter Pakistan than it is to enter Iran. And then from Iran, there are thousands of people who are entering Turkey and then the European border. So yeah, this the cycle, the migration cycle that is started after the handover of Afghanistan to the Taliban has been going on and is still. So yeah, it's an ongoing process and it uh, hasn't stopped. Do you have any knowledge about what the situation is in of, of Afghan refugees in the neighboring countries? Uh, well, I do. Unfortunately, we do not hear a lot of good news from the neighboring countries either, uh, because uh, on one way there are thousands of Afghans uh, trying to enter Iran, for example, and on the other hand, they are being forcibly returned back to Afghanistan. So there, there's this uh, ongoing process for uh, the Afghans are trying to get to Iran. And then uh, in Pakistan, there are thousands of Afghans stuck in different cities in Pakistan, uh, for example, in Quetta, in Islamabad, in other cities. Some of them are being forcibly expelled back to Afghanistan, and some are somehow managed to stay in Iran or go further into Turkey. So you, you talked about that some Afghans are forcibly returned to, to Afghanistan from Iran and from, from Pakistan as well. So how does that work and and what do they encounter when they return back to Afghanistan? Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, the, the the first thing that uh, forces Afghans to flee Afghanistan is the humanitarian disaster that's going on under the Taliban regime. So once they're deported back to Afghanistan, they witness harsher treatments from both the Iranian, for example, government and the Taliban uh, the government that's run by the Taliban now. So it gets much more harsher and harder for them once they return back because they had a hope that they will at least be safe in Iran or in Pakistan. Yeah, they're, they're struggling, they're struggling, and most of them do not uh, wait for a long time. They try as soon as they can to get out of the country again because there's no way that this uh, number of Afghans can survive under a situation that the normal Afghan citizens are going on these days. Last month, the EU has pledged a billion euro of aid to Afghanistan and the neighboring countries that are hosting um, Afghan refugees. Has any of that promised aid already reached organizations or the people on the ground? Or uh, Well, we are hearing news of this kind of humanitarian assistance that may have come to Afghanistan. But according to the reports that we have been receiving, Afghans, normal Afghan citizens, haven't received any of those support. Especially, for example, in the capital, Kabul, we do not uh, know many families who may have received this kind of support. So it's more of, and there's also the fear that the, most of the support that is meant to be going to the Afghan citizens are rather going to the, to the Iraq, for example, the Taliban fighters, to feed them, to 
for example, the clothing or whatever is going to them. So the, unfortunately, there is fears that most of the support that is meant to go to the Afghan people, to the Afghan civilians, is going to the Taliban fighters rather than the common Afghan citizens. Yeah, because there's also now a, a discussion going on also in the international community about what you just said about, you know, how um, ethical is it or how prudent is it to give international aid and, and how do we make sure that it doesn't um, or that it, you know, falls into the hands of, of the Taliban or of the fighters, as you just said. Do you have any view on that debate? Do you think that, you know, aid is absolutely necessary? Because as you said, it's a humanitarian crisis. People are going to starve. So money needs to flow in, in any case? Or do you think that there needs to be certain conditions or more control mechanisms, maybe? Well, that's the only way to go with it. There has to be a, some sort of control mechanism and uh, the support that is being given to the Afghan citizens or the humanitarian assistance, there should be monitoring. It should be monitored you know, on how will it go to the Afghan people. Does it even go to the Afghan people or not? For example, in the last week, Uh, the Dutch and the German government decided to pay the salary of uh, Afghan teachers, for example. You know, mm -hmm. So what they are doing is that they are directly paying those teachers. They're not giving the money to the Taliban. But still, still, there is always this fear that who knows how many of Taliban make a list, a fake list of Uh, and introduce the fi uh, Taliban fighters as teachers, for example. There is always this fear. But at least what the, hum what the international community or the West can do is at least to uh, create this monitoring teams or whatever you call it, or at least monitor that support or the aid doesn't fall into the hands of the Taliban. And it, it will at least reach the uh, common Afghan people who are in dire need of it. If we look back on the reaction of the EU to um, specifically to the Afghan refugee problem now, or it's not really a problem, but what do you think or what is your view or the Afghanistan Migrants Advice and Support Organization's view of, of the almost, it seems, singular focus on making sure that Afghan refugees or any kind of refugees, as it were, do not step foot on European soil? Uh, well, since I have been following this, uh, the measure of the Afghan influx into Europe, for many years now. What I found out is that Afghans, unfortunately, have been marginalized for so many years by the European states. They have been sidelined. Their cases or their situation hasn't been given that amount of attention that they needed, especially now. See, Afghanistan has just come out of a, a disaster, a, a handover, I would say, to the Taliban, and where thousands of people were forced to flee the country, and there were hundreds Uh, 120,000 people evacuated by different countries, including the U.S., Germany. But there are still European states who are giving Afghan asylum seekers negative answers to their asylum claim, saying that Afghanistan is even safer under the Taliban, which is, of course, debatable. It's, it's, uh, I mean, no one in good senses would believe that Afghanistan is safe under the Taliban. You know, if you look at... Uh, The treatment of women, for example, the treatment of minorities by the Taliban, the humanitarian crisis, which we uh, have been talking about. So this is something that the European countries uh, are still, unfortunately, sidelining the Afghan refugees. They are sidelining the, the, the whole crisis. They do not even believe that something like this has happened in Afghanistan. And there are still thousands of people who are living in a limbo in these European countries. For example, Germany is not even is is even not uh, processing the cases of afghan refugees 
and they're they're just okay you have to wait until we see the, how the situation goes there and then we will decide whether we will give you protection or not uh so it it is unfair it has been unfair with the afghan refugees for uh for so long and still unfortunately the european countries haven't learned anything from whatever that was created somehow by them in afghanistan after hearing abdul's story i was curious to look at the eu's approach in more detail Next, you'll hear from René Taus Hansen, who works at the Afghanistan and Pakistan Department at the European External Action Service, and Helena Hahn, Junior Policy Analyst in the European Migration and Diversity Program at the EPC. I started by asking them what the EU is currently doing and whether it's enough. I think I would step back one one bit uh, mm-hmm. from your question, you know, in terms of is the international community doing enough? I would want to maybe um, just elaborate a little bit as to why we are in this crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan was bad even before the Taliban uh, takeover in August, but the international community had systems in place to deal with that crisis. Um, and it was not a new crisis. It had been ongoing for, for several years. The reason why we now find ourselves in an unprecedented crisis uh, that is difficult to deal with is because the Taliban decided to do a military takeover. We could have been in a very, very different situation at the moment if the Taliban had, in fact, honored their pledges for a negotiated solution in Afghanistan, which they have told the EU on many occasions that that was their priority. We actually could have had a situation now where all the donors will continue its work, their work in Afghanistan, all the systems for assistance will still be in place, the embassies will still be functioning, and the Taliban would be part of a transitional government uh, through negotiations. So this is an entirely man-made disaster. Uh, I think that is an important uh, <clears throat> aspect to, to think about when we discuss whether the international community is doing enough, uh, because we are responding to a man-made disaster based on their policy choices. Given that that is now the, the case, we are doing our utmost uh, because, uh, as we have repeatedly stated, we are here to protect and support the Afghan people, irrespective of who is in power. Uh, and that uh, principle remains, uh, which is why we have shifted our assistance from uh, development, which we can no longer do because of the military takeover, to humanitarian efforts. And um, as I recall, the, the pledges by the UN back in September was uh, about 1.2 billion. Uh, it has since grown dramatically, but that that pledge was actually overfulfilled, and, and the EU and its member states have overwhelmingly been the main donor uh, to that. I also want to say that you know, one thing is pledges, another thing is actually dispersing the funding. Mm-hmm. And the latest statistics I have seen is that the EU and, and member states are among those who actually also disperse funding to to the UN uh, efforts and international uh, humanitarian organizations. So I do not have the numbers here, but overall, I think actually maybe the EU is actually contributing more in monetary terms to Afghanistan than we did before, Mm -hmm. because we now have this massive humanitarian uh, intervention. That said, we also have to recognize that humanitarian support cannot fulfill the needs left behind by the collapse of government systems. Yeah. By the very nature of things, humanitarian support is in the long term unsustainable. Uh, We do need government systems in place. We do need doctors, nurses, teachers being paid a salary. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and with the collapse of those systems again because the Taliban decided to to do a military takeover conditions are much more difficult than they would have been so you hinted there at more of a of a long-term prospect for for aid um, so making the switch back as it were from um, humanitarian um, to development aid what's the state of discussion there um, within the EU institution and and member states and can you maybe help explain the complexities around this discussion a little bit yeah I think there are there are at least three considerations in terms of Uh, providing long-term development assistance to Afghanistan in this context. One is uh, political. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it is very difficult for the EU and member states to provide support to a movement that has overthrown a constitutional-based government through violent means. Mm -hmm. um, that traditionally means a freezing of aid. We have seen that in other countries. It has also been the response to I believe, the crisis in Myanmar, So politically, that, that is in itself a big, a big issue. Uh, secondly, there are also some legal constraints in that regard. First of all, uh, we are no longer sure which constitution applies in Afghanistan. We do not know with whom we should make any agreements. Our long-term development uh, plans was agreed with the former government, which is no longer in place. We do not know who has the authority, constitutional authority, to enter into new agreements. The EU development instruments, Biki, uh, also have provisions that we cannot provide support to entities that violently break international human rights. Mm -hmm. um, so there are also some, some very practical and, and, and legal issues at play here. Finally, we have the issue of sanctions. It's important to state that the EU do not have sanctions against the Taliban as a group. The EU policy on sanctions in Afghanistan is that we adopt the sanctions uh, which are approved in the UN. Those sanctions are aimed at individuals. But since I believe between 16 and 18 members of the caretaker cabinet appointed by the Taliban is on those sanctions lists, it also makes it very difficult for us to sign agreements with any of those ministers Uh, because they are still under the sanctions regime in the UN, which has then been adopted by the EU. So, so those are some of the challenges in terms of long-term development assistance for Afghanistan, and which is why we are focusing on humanitarian assistance at the moment. Um, Helena, maybe your take on the, the, the discussion on humanitarian versus uh, development aid. I think Renee already highlighted, um, again, some of the main complexities and challenges, and I think this discussion you know, just goes to show you that there are so many factors at play. At the same time, though, we do need to take a step back and also consider the fact that this discussion is also very closely tied to the fundamental question of how the international community or the quote-unquote West should engage or not in Afghanistan, and if so, under what terms and conditions. And I think the dilemma that we're seeing now is that, at least in my view, a principled approach to engaging with the Taliban, again, bearing in mind the political and legal constraints and also the questions around sanctions, are coming at a great cost for the local population. And I don't just mean the rural one, but also um, the urban, um, urban middle class uh, in particular. Now, the argument has been made that the EU should engage with the Taliban in the absence of other viable alternatives to government, in part to prevent further deterioration um, in terms of Afghan livelihoods. So, in other words, to engage, but to make it, around, uh, to make it about the Afghan people. 
Others, though, have argued that after 20 years of large-scale failure, the international community first needs a moment of reckoning and can then possibly invest to ensure that people's livelihood can, you know, can be supported and can be sustained. And um, maybe to also add to that, that that should actually also involve local NGOs and not just occur via international, via international organizations. So maybe as a final point, I think we're seeing now that there's a choice between engaging with the Taliban, which have no credible governance plan in place and are also willing to let go of commitments as needed. I'm thinking, for instance, of the rights of women and girls, or possibly missing opportunities to address the issues that could be discussed, such as the situation at the land borders. But I think, um, again, it's very time sensitive. And I think in going forward, the question maybe is also what issues are there where there can be political engagement and where, you know, does the EU and other international actors need to remain firm in terms of, um, again, priorities, international law, um, etc.? Renee, um, are there any plans from the EU side for engaging with the Taliban in the in the near future? And what, if so, what issues will be prioritized? And also, um, some aid has been promised, but how do we avoid the Taliban using that money for their own nefarious purposes? Um, just to to reaffirm, the EU has been engaging with the Taliban for a long period now. We engaged with the Taliban uh, throughout the peace talks in Doha with uh, the Republic at the time to make our voices heard in terms of our focus on inclusive governance, human rights, uh, and the negotiated solution. Uh, We have uh, maintained dialogue with the Taliban, and actually as early as uh, end of November, we uh, had the first bilateral EU-Taliban dialogue in Doha, uh, with uh, both the EU Commission, the European Commission, and the, the External Action Service, and uh, representatives from the Taliban government in Kabul uh, at ministerial level, and and those dialogues actually focus on on some of the issues we're discussing here. You know, uh, humanitarian assistance, <clears throat> the socio-economic crisis in Afghanistan, the priorities the EU has on human rights, inclusive governance humanitarian access, uh, and so on. So we do maintain those dialogues, um, and the EU is planning to establish a what we call minimal presence in Kabul, specifically with the purpose of ensuring that our humanitarian assistance can be delivered in the country. Uh, <clears throat> and we already have uh, our, our humanitarian staff on the ground. Just to uh, touch upon the issue of uh, development versus humanitarian support, uh, we are fully recognizing the, the need for long-term development in Afghanistan. That's why we have invested so heavily over the many years. And I think that Commission President von der Leyen announced a $1 billion Afghan support package uh, uh, in, uh, in September. And that support package consists of partly humanitarian aid, but also a very large degree of what we name uh, humanitarian plus assistance which is exactly to bridge the gap between humanitarian development. So it's the humanitarian development nexus, so to speak. Um, so it is, it is development funding. It will be implemented through humanitarian partnerships, but also have a more long-term systemic approach, because we do recognize that humanitarian support alone will not cut it. So the humanitarian plus approach is aimed at supporting important sectors such as education and health, possibly even paying the salaries of government staff if we can find a modality for that, uh, and also for livelihoods. Mm-hmm. Again, to, to safeguard 
the the Afghan people, basically. Um, so so that is definitely something that we are trying to to do. We are trying to push the boundaries of humanitarian development support uh, as much as possible, but recognizing that we have both political, legal, uh, and sanctions issues to deal with uh, in this regard. What do you make of some of the ongoing criticism that some of the humanitarian aid is maybe not reaching the right people on the ground, but also being given largely to um, big international organizations rather than local NGOs? I think, first of all, in terms of not reaching Mm -hmm. uh, people on the ground, I think, again, we have to go back to the fact that this is a very difficult situation. This is a crisis that has escalated many-fold compared to a year ago. And therefore, a lot of people will will have a tangible deterioration of their living conditions. And therefore, the demand is much higher. Um, so that means that, you know, not reaching people also means that there are so many more in need, uh, which makes the, the, the job even more difficult. So I think that's part of it. I think, secondly, this mobilization of resources has happened in a fairly short time. And winter is setting in, so it is difficult for our international partners to, uh, humanitarian partners, to get it on the ground as quickly as possible. On the positive side, there are less conflict uh, in the country that should be able to to assist in, in, in distribution of aid. It is very much on our agenda. Uh, that is why we have staff in Kabul at the moment uh, to monitor uh, and facilitate the delivery of this aid. Coming to whether we should, as EU, prioritize local NGOs more than international organizations, I think we have to look at also the structure of international humanitarian work. I think the the best way and the fastest way of EU to mobilize its resources in Afghanistan is to provide the funding to these, let's call them juggernauts of international humanitarian assistance. And they will then in turn engage uh, local NGOs possibly in the implementation of the assistance. Mm. But having EU from Brussels selecting local NGOs uh, for assistance is probably not going to be efficient. And, and speed is of the essence here, uh, and volume is of the essence. So therefore, we have to invest in partners that has a proven track record. And we've been lucky that the existing humanitarian partners that we do have in, Kab- in Kabul and Afghanistan all have decided to continue their work, and we are utilizing the, those, uh, those partnerships. And so besides promising this this aid package, back in in August and September, European governments also quickly emphasized the importance of giving support to neighboring countries, especially when it comes to hosting Afghan refugees. What has EU engagement with those countries in the neighborhood, so Iran, Pakistan, um, Central Asian countries, uh, achieved so far? I think uh, the the support to, to the region and neighboring countries has actually been ongoing for a long time. We have had uh, regional support programs, which has uh, specifically focused maybe more Pakistan and and Iran than other countries because they are the recipients of large population flows from Afghanistan. Um, So they have been receiving support for for quite a long time. Uh, We also have uh, support to especially Central Asia in terms of managing migration, civilian border control, uh, programs also for an extended period of time, because we don't see this only as an emergency measure to stop whatever flow of uh, migrants that might come from Afghanistan, but actually a long-term structural issue that that, that requires attention. And that is why we've been engaged for, for, for quite a number of years. Given the 
humanitarian situation in Afghanistan, the support package announced by von der Leyen also includes uh, potentially increased support to these efforts, both in terms of supporting the neighboring countries in migration management and receiving migrants, but also on the border control, civilian border control issues uh, in, in Central Asia. Uh, Helena, your take? Yeah, I would maybe highlight two points. Um, first of all, I think, and I mentioned this before, in going forward, I, I see one clear priority um, for EU engagement with these neighboring countries, which is to, to open up these discussions and continue discussions around opening up land borders. Both Iran and Pakistan have largely closed all the official border uh, crossing points, um, leaving a lot of people that actually have valid exit documents um, stranded in the border region. And, um, and I mean, this also relates to the fact that many have in the past couple of months criticized the outside focus back in, in August on the airport as well as evacuations by air. And the fact that this then led to insufficient att attention to other border or exit points. And as I said, the result is that many continue to be stranded or simply continue not to be able to enter into Pakistan and to be able to move on from there because obviously diplomatic presence has been largely downscaled in Afghanistan. And so it simply has made it a lot more difficult to even get to a place of safety uh, along with a, a lot of other uncertainty. The second point that I would maybe make is that while it's clear that there's a focus on Iran and Pakistan, as well as Central Asian countries, I do want to mention the fact that in the aftermath of the Taliban takeover, there was also a lot of talk around Turkey's role in both hosting Afghan nationals that were already there or also would be trying to enter the country, as well as though preventing movement by further Afghans, many of whom, I should add, were at that point, so in previous months, but also now already based in Iran, rather than coming directly from Afghanistan. Now, however, this attention has receded for several reasons, among them ongoing political tensions between the EU and uh, Turkey, and a clearly demonstrated unwillingness by Turkey to open its borders, or also to boost financial and practical support for Afghan nationals in Turkey. And now, while the Commission had already announced a $3 billion support package back in June 2021 as part of its ongoing cooperation with Turkey, the money allocated so far has only benefited Syrian nationals. And this makes it a complex situation because not only has it become clear that many Afghans, that many Syrians will remain in Turkey, but also that Afghans now have, um, have shown to constitute the second largest group in Turkey at around 400 to 500,000 people, possibly a bit more. As part of the, the MEDAM project, actually, our assessment report of this year has argued that the EU should continue to work with Turkey to stabilize the situation at its external borders, including to Iran. But in my view, this absolutely has to go beyond funding border infrastructure, while also considering ways uh, to boost resettlement, refugee resettlement from Turkey for non-Syrian nationals who, again, are unable to register in Turkey and therefore also do not currently enjoy the same benefits. I also think that the EU needs to send or to consider what message it is sending, because in some ways it is pushing out its external borders beyond the Schengen area. Again, this relates to the point on, on funding border infrastructure at the Turkish-Iranian um, border, therefore making it harder to access territorial asylum to those Afghans that are in need of international protection 
whilst also not offering alternatives to protection, such as through scaled up resettlement programs or also complementary pathways. So while I think it is really commendable that um, the EU is engaging with these immediate neighboring countries, I do have some questions, uh, some question marks around what that will mean for future EU-Turkey cooperation. I'm not an expert on, on the Turkey relations, but I can <clears throat> talk to some of the priorities we have in terms of migration from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is to assist people where they are at the moment and limit uh, any displacement of people based on the humanitarian crisis. Uh, not only because uh, migration is not in the strategic interest of the EU, irregular migration that is, but also because this is a perilous journey for many of these people and fraught with dangers. So whenever we can, if we can protect the livelihoods of, of these people and, and, and make sure that they remain productive uh, in, in Afghanistan, that is to everybody's benefit. Um, so that is why we have scaled up our assistance uh, to humanitarian efforts uh, to that degree and helping uh, with the migration management. And yet it seems that despite the EU's best intentions and goodwill, a lot of Afghan people and Afghan refugees still feel abandoned. One of my last questions to Abdul was whether he felt hopeful about the future and whether he thought the EU and international community would eventually step up their efforts and fulfill their obligations towards the Afghan people. Uh, well, looking on uh, the situation that I have been following up since my uh, own arrival in Germany, I don't see a lot of improvement. I don't see what the... Uh, European countries, what they were supposed to do, they are not doing uh, uh, even a bit of it. There are very few countries that have evacuated, let's say, three or four thousand Afghans, and that's it. There are still thousands of Afghans and stuck in Afghanistan under a cruel Taliban regime. Their lives are at least these are the people that have that had made the lives of, for example, the German. Uh, soldiers in Afghanistan easy, the French soldiers in Afghanistan easy, but they are still stuck in those countries. In this, and the, the European countries are literally doing nothing for them. The evacuations, you know, has uh, gradually gone down. There are only a few hundred people being evacuated in a month, let's say. But what about those who have put their lives in danger and they are still stuck? What will happen to them? Looking at what, what's happening right now, I'm not too hopeful that the European countries even remember what they have done in Afghanistan and what are they supposed to do to help those who once helped the European, uh, let's say, organizations, the European soldiers. So no, I don't have a lot of hope looking at the situation, which is kind of shameful, to be honest with you, uh, which is shameful. They, the European countries, most of the European countries have much more capability and capacity to help those people who, who have put their lives in danger for them. Thank you to Abdul, René and Helena for their contributions. We here at the EPC will continue to closely follow the EU's migration policies. If you're interested to learn more about our work, go to epc.eu or subscribe to this podcast. Tune in next time. Until then, over and out.